Here's the math of this movie. Out of more than 6 million pages of CIA documents came the 6,700 pages of the classified 2014 U.S. Senate report on CIA interrogation techniques. And that was boiled down to 500-some pages of the public executive summary. And out of those, and a lot more research, comes two hours of a new film, The Report, about the politics and the substance of the CIA's post-9-11 torture tactics for questioning terrorism detainees. The middle word in the title of the movie is significantly blacked out. It's the word torture, and the redaction symbolizes how ineffective enhanced interrogation tactics, like waterboarding, ended up being used and then covered up. The film uses the entwined stories of real CIA and intelligence officials, of political figures like California senior Senator Dianne Feinstein and her staffer Daniel L. Jones, the movie's protagonist, who spent years immersed in an investigation whose findings he knew might never see the light of day. This is a remarkable document you've created, truly. It will provide an enduring history, whether it comes out or not. Director and writer Scott Z. Burns details the path to making a feature film about a significant but secretive chunk of the life of the nation's intelligence operations. Did you have any idea when you began it how massive a job it would be? I don't think so. I, I may have changed my mind if I had known, so I think it's a good thing that I didn't fully appreciate the thread that I was pulling on. At one point, about a year and a half in, when I had a draft, I took it to Tony Gilroy, who is one of my screenwriting heroes. And he wasn't thrilled with the draft. And I think he looked at my reaction and felt like I was going to maybe give up. And he said to me, you can't give up. You're the only one who's going to do this. You have to do this. You're the only one who's going to tell this story. And I wrote down in my notebook, you're the only one who's going to tell this story. And that line actually made it into the movie. And I guess that's how I felt after that meeting, was that it was me versus the story, and one of us was going to win. Well, what about it made you think, gee, this story needs to be told as a feature film, not as a documentary? I think stories that I've seen in my life where there were actors instead of documentaries, movies like Serpico, Movies like Aaron Brockovich, Silkwood, more recently, a movie like The Insider. I like stories about truth tellers who stand up to corrupt and broken systems very much. And so I felt that the power of that would really benefit from some amount of dramaturgy and some amount of narrative compression because so much of the language of the story had always been legalese and governmental, that that in itself was an obstacle to our understanding. And so to get it off of the formality of governance and into an idiom that I think people could relate to more seemed like a, an important task in and of itself. The thing took place really over almost 10 years between the revelation of the tapes being destroyed and the report itself coming out. It's hard for, I think, people to really piece together a story, a tragedy that unfolds that slowly. It's also unlikely that people are going to go online 
and look at the report and make their own decisions. Well, we knew this wasn't going to be easy. They have their own narrative, and they're going to stick to it. The added problem that the report faced was the CIA had a very nimble and organized counter-narrative that they put out the day the report came out. The story of that day, of I think December 9th, 2014, was the revelation and the admission that we had conducted a systemic, brutal torture program. But the next day, everybody moved on, and the CIA went on news programs, and they won the broadcast media battle unopposed, because Senator Feinstein is not someone who would go and do that. And so there wasn't really advocacy for the narrative that was put out. The CIA said its enhanced interrogation program was based on techniques devised by two psychologists who believed using coercion and forced helplessness would get detainees to offer up intelligence details, which didn't happen. In talking to psychologists and military interrogators, they all are very angry because Mitchell and Jessen said that there was science that these brutal methods, these enhanced interrogation methods, as they called them, were effective. And I spoke to military interrogators and FBI agents. All of these people would say to me, there is no science. And yet I don't really think Mitchell and Jessen were charlatans. I think they really believed that they were doing righteous work on behalf of their country, which to me is in a way even more upsetting. What I had started off doing when I became aware of Mitchell and Justin was I had an idea that maybe I could turn this into a sort of Dr. Strangelove dark comedy about torture. And I started down that path and the report came out and I did a very fundamental move, which was I called Feinstein's office and I said it. I'm a citizen of California, and I'd like to speak to this gentleman, Daniel Jones, who's listed as the lead investigator on this report. And Daniel and I started having conversations. He never told me anything that wasn't open source. And when I heard his story, there was a massive pivot that I felt I needed to make, which was this was someone who struck me as an American hero. And I wanted to use him as not only sort of a tracer bullet through the CIA's enhanced interrogation program, but through what our government, how our government functions right now and some of these larger issues, which we keep cycling back to about accountability and separation of powers. You also make it clear, as facts dictate too, that the Obama administration does not come out of this with clean hands. That was sort of a revelation to me when I started doing my research. And it's this sort of politics of expediency that I think particularly the Democrats practice, where, you know what, yes, torture is bad and we stopped the program, but we said we were going to be bipartisan, so we're not going to hold anybody accountable. Or, yes, these bankers did horrible criminal things, but we need them to fix the system so we're not going to hold anybody accountable. Because if we hold people accountable, then maybe they won't let us have our health care plan or our immigration plan. And what I find pathetic about that is we didn't get our health care plan and we didn't get our immigration plan. So clearly that strategy is a loser. There was a clip that I found early on of Barack Obama saying, 
we need to turn the page. And it's exactly what George Bush said, was we need to turn the page. And I just wish we'd read the page before we turn it and learn from it. It must have been very difficult to decide how to do the torture scenes because they're very unsettling and very graphic, but you also need to convey, look, this is what was being done by and in the name of the United States. Evidently, the CIA destroyed tapes of interrogations of al-Qaeda detainees. I want to find out what was on the tapes, why they were destroyed. I was thinking that you were, as you read about the torture, that you were thinking that this was probably very much what it looked like, what was on the tapes that no longer exist. When I did my research, I started off by needing to understand what fear school was, because these techniques were based on a thing called fear school, and it stands for survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. Fear school is the place where we send our elite forces to prepare them for what the most despicable regimes on earth might do to them if they were captured. And when we train people to tolerate these techniques, we instruct them to give false confessions. And so it's almost something out of Catch-22 to think you can reverse engineer this and turn it into some magic way of getting people to tell the truth. They waterboarded him 183 times and then concluded KSM may never be forthcoming or honest. Everything they got from him was either a lie or something they already had. But I think the most important conversation I had around this was with Alberto Mora. And Alberto Mora, during the program that the CIA was conducting, was at the Navy, and he was their chief counsel. And he said, are you going to show these things? And I said I wasn't sure. And I, I had toyed with the idea of trying to get around having to shoot these things because it was scary to me that it would alienate people. And also, I, I didn't want to be accused of being exploitative or sensationalistic. And Alberto said to me, if you don't show it, aren't you doing exactly what the CIA did? Aren't you getting rid of what everybody knows is very, very powerful communication? which is to see these things being done to fellow humans. And I found his argument very, very compelling. The title is, the word torture is excised and its impact is visual. This is censored. This is a word that is censored from the title to convey how censored this entire program had been. What were the debates over the title that you staged with other people or with yourself? I've always had a hard time naming movies. When I wrote The Informant, I remember Steven Soderbergh and I sitting around staring at it for a long time. And I said, it just doesn't feel like a comedy right now. And then he took out a magic marker and put an exclamation point at the end of it and said, now it does. Um, <laughs> at one point, I think I had toyed with it being called survival fear, basically. Um, whatever that acronym stands for. But obviously the fact that I can't even remember it now probably means it wasn't a good title. But when we were in production, you have to put something on the call sheet. And what the art department, you know, they said, do you want to call it the torture report? And I said, well, no, redact the word torture on the call sheet. And it sort of stuck. I wish I'd, I had a name like the Parallax View or All the President's Men, because those were movies that I really admired and I loved those titles, but I'm happy with the report. 
you cite All the President's Men, which is essentially a movie about people talking to other people, people writing down notes, and people typing. And yet it's a gripping story. I guess you had it in mind when you thought about this. This is a story about people taking notes, comparing notes, reading stuff, and yet it's a blockbuster in its impact on the country. I love that movie, and I had my entire crew over to my house for weeks beforehand, and we would sit around and eat pizza and watch 70s political thrillers. And foremost among them, in my mind anyway, is All the President's Men. And to me, it was very inspiring because it it is exactly what you said. It's a movie where people talk to each other, and you see a horrible truth emerge. And then you see the struggle of deciding what to do with that information once you have it. And that is very much the arc of Daniel Jones in our film. So it felt like a really good resource for me to go back and refer to time and time again. Was that also useful when you were trying to get funding? Because it can't have been an easy sell. Yeah, we're making a movie about the CIA torture report. Well, you know... We didn't get funding very easily, and and nobody in Hollywood really helped with this movie, and pretty much everybody passed on it. Selling it as All the President's Men didn't work, even though we tried that. We also talked about a movie like Spotlight, which was an investigative piece that I thought would work. But you hear a lot of things that are sort of deflating, like, Nobody wants to hear about this piece of history, and this movie won't do well internationally, and it's discouraging, and I don't think it's true. I don't think it's Star Wars and that everybody is going to go with their family, but I do think that it's important that we tell these stories, and I do think that there are people who are really fortified by going to the theater and seeing these kinds of things play out. But let's just think how many countries there are in the world where a report like this could even get done. I would like us to be more than the country that did the report. I'd like us to be the country that made it public. And that is what I intend to see happen. I had a very interesting conversation with Jane Mayer one day, and we were talking about whether this story has a happy ending. And I said, well, I guess, I look at the toll this took on Daniel. I look at the redactions. I look at the 6,300 pages that we don't get to see. I look at the fact that this program existed at all, that a Republican administration created it, endorsed it, ran it, and that a Democratic administration failed to hold people accountable for it. That doesn't feel to me like a happy ending. And Jane said, but it got out. And countries all over the world do bad things. And once again, we did do something exceptional. We owned our mistake. And that was a really great moment for me. Yes, this is about dysfunction, but it's also about some extraordinary people who, because of their rigor and their integrity, allowed this story to find a place in the public record. You look at the fact that The amendment that came out of this, the McCain-Feinstein amendment, and that there was a moment not that long ago when a Republican and a Democrat could agree on something and get the work done. And 
you can either go, wow, it's really tragic that we have lost that this quickly, or maybe it's inspiring to go, maybe there is a way to get that back. It's not like it never happened. You were producer of An Inconvenient Truth, which won an Oscar for documentary. Now, having done this, have you thought maybe it's time for An Inconvenient Truth as a feature film? I am working on a project that hopefully we'll be able to announce before the end of the year, which is a climate change project that is scripted. So it remains to me, I think, the central issue of our time. And I think it's really interesting why it hasn't found its way into fiction and cinema and music and other arts to the degree that it needs to. You know, when you think about other major events, when a war happens, it finds its way into every artist and we all have to process it. And climate change, because it's such a slow moving disaster, hasn't really done that. Scott Burns, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. The audio moments are from the Amazon Studios film The Report, starring Adam Driver and Annette Bening. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks, and you won't have to miss a single podcast. <laughs>